In Davos, the world's top leaders contend with the planet's most pressing problems. Brian Moynihan's voice carries further in those discussions than just about anybody's. As CEO of Bank of America, one of the largest financial institutions on earth, Moynihan oversees more than $2 trillion in assets and employs over 200,000 people serving tens of millions of customers across 36 countries. Embracing his role as an agenda setter, Moynihan sits on the World Economic Forum International Business Council and the Business Roundtable. He's here to talk about what's next for global finance amid threats like climate change, trade wars, and wealth inequality. Hello everyone, I'm Andy Serwer and welcome to Influencers. And welcome to our guest, Brian Moynihan, CEO of Bank of America. Brian, great to see you. It's great to be here, Andy. Thanks for taking the time. And Brian, of course, we're here in Davos, Switzerland at the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. And you are chairman of the World Economic Forum's International Business Council. And can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what you do? I think it's best to to understand what it is. It's uh, about 130 larger companies in the world, uh, the CEOs, and it's a it runs in partnership with the IBC, and there's a chairman's group and then a, a owner's group. So there's three groups that kind of run together. Uh, but the IBC represents the largest companies, and this year we're working hard on trying to align stakeholder capitalism, Klaus's vision from 50 years ago that's progressed through the, through the time, uh, with you know sort of real metrics that can measure it so we can show that companies can both make good money and deliver for their shareholders and teammates and customers and deliver for society. But how do we measure that to make sure we're doing it? Yeah, measuring. Let's jump right into that because um, there was some talk that you were actually spearheading right. an initiative to sort of create some standards when it comes to ESG. Right. And so Klaus uh, started 50 years ago said we need stakeholder capitalism in response to the view that the shareholders were supreme expressed by Milton Friedman and the others. You know, travel through time and Davos has been a leader in trying to get convening all the Griffin groups to talk about it. 2015, the UN says the Sustainable Development Goals are developed by 190 countries saying this is what society needs from the world mm -hmm. uh, to make progress. 2017, the companies in the IBC and beyond signed and said we'll, we will make progress on the SDGs. 2019, we got to then measure that progress and get the owners of the assets, the you know, investors in the world, to the people that give the assets to manage it, the asset management firms, the operators aligned around goals that show you're making progress. Otherwise, it's just talk, and that's the teeth we're trying to put into it. Real metrics using currently available systems, but getting them organized so companies can commit to them, disclose them, and show they're making progress on the key, the SDG uh, uh, key pillars. And are you doing that this week? Are you making progress yep. meeting with people? We've been working on it. Uh, the group's been working on it. The WEF and the uh, four uh, accounting firms have been driving it for us, uh, along with uh, representatives of various companies. And so that has produced a, a white paper, so to speak, that is the start of, the, of, of going through with the companies and sort of making sure we got it right from all the participants, from the operators, I mean companies like Bank of America, from the investors, uh, Larry Fink and BlackRock, and from the owners, meaning the three trillion dollars of clients uh, we have in Merrill and our private bank who put their money with people like uh, Larry, and so we're, that's what we're trying to do, and that's the work over the next year or so. Yeah, do you have a timetable on when you think that this is going to be rolled out? 
Well, we're rolling it out today to the, mm -hmm. that group, and then the idea is to is to codify it more. And we meet in the summer in August, and we'll hopefully get get the work done. Um, and it, there's no new metrics here. There, it's an organization right. of SASB and uh, GRI and all these different metrics. There's just sort of conflicting metrics, or or not necessarily conflicting, but just different metrics. Right. Well, so if you really want to back up and say, why do you mm -hmm. need to do this? The the SDGs require six trillion dollars a year. Mm -hmm. A year, mm -hmm. okay. That's a lot of money. Yeah, we do about two trillion dollars a year to support them. And SDGs are the Sustainable Development Goals right. by the UN to implement what the metrics are underneath those goals. It takes right. six trillion a year. Uh, the world's charities and the wonderful institutions that go through all that do about eight to nine hundred billion dollars of charitable giving a year. So not enough to make it. The endowments of the world have about a trillion and a half dollars in them. Again, if they emptied them, not enough to make it. So. And the governments of the world are all operating at deficits and spend a lot of money on this stuff, but they don't have a trillion or two to throw on the table across the board. Even the U.S. is the biggest uh, government. So what's going to actually drive the success is getting capitalism aligned. Mm -hmm. So you move from our charity, which is $250 million a year, to right. our whole operating, which is $53 billion in operating expense, and how we position that with our suppliers, with our our energy consumption, all to drive the change along the SDGs. And so if you think about that, our $2.5 trillion balance sheet doing business for our clients to help them make the change on our environment. For example, that's a $300 billion environmental program where it just kicked off again. You know, that alignment between companies and the goals will help bring the money to get that $6 trillion funded. Without that, we're never going to make the kind of progress we'd like. Right. Greta Thunberg, the activist, just spoke here, Brian, and said that she didn't think any progress had been made when it comes to reducing carbon emissions. Right. What do you think about that? Well, I, the, the idea is, are we making progress? The answer is yes. Is the question fast enough? We should make it faster, and I'm a pragmatist. The debate about what might happen 50 years in the future can be avoided by people arguing about, in my mind, about the outcomes and the variables across 30 years or 50 years, a little bit of change in variables. And there's a great debate about whether people are overstating the impact of this and understanding that kind of, that's all uninteresting in some ways. Mm -hmm. We believe, and the companies assigned the SDGs believe we have to make progress in SDGs. So what are we gonna do tomorrow to make a step? So we are carbon neutral this year. We actually completed it last year. We had a uh, $25 billion, then went to $50 billion, then went to $125 billion environmental commitment we completed in four years, it was supposed to be 10 years. Mm -hmm. Now we're doing 300 billion over 10 years. We have, and to do that, you have to have a business proposition. It's not just interesting work. It has to be really core to businesses. So we're driving that. And companies like ours are doing that around, uh, around the world. So we have to make more progress. I, don't, I completely agree with that. But the way is to get everybody motivated and pushing hard. For us to say we're carbon neutral and for an oil and gas company to say it's carbon neutral, two different questions, because that's their business and we have other businesses. But the bridge between it is, if we're going to provide funds to them, lending to them and stuff, we need them to be making progress. Society thinks they're making the transition happen and, and you see oil and gas companies committed. That way we should lend to those companies to help make progress faster rather than divest from them, which won't help them at all. Oh, that's your take on the fossil fuel industry, that right. you want to be a participant? We, we are a participant, right. but what we want to do is we want them to drive themselves to make the change. So we did a... a do you ever talk to them about oh, actually impacting the, the two, on the International Business Council, right. a bunch of oil and uh, gas companies and uh, electric power producers, etc. So I was on a panel with a, uh, Lynn Good, who runs Duke Power, and she's on the IBC, and we were going down the panel, and she's made... Uh, was talking about her commitments to her company as a power generator mm -hmm. to be reduce its carbon emissions by half by such and such a date and higher. 
and the people just let it go by without thinking, you know, without sort of saying, wow, you know, and I stopped the crowd and said, wait a second, think about that. Mm -hmm. That's a power company. If they're moving that kind, with that kind of pace, and we are saying we need more alternative energy to meet our goals, that business system will, will get more progress. And so, yes, we've got to make more progress. We've got to make it faster. But we've got to do it in a line way. Otherwise, we're dependent on the charity or the tax benefits or something to drive it. And so we, we are the largest green bond financer, and those go into companies and make changes. We did a deal with, with a power company and made a simple covenant, for lack of a better if we're not 50% alternative by such and such a date, the interest rate goes up. I mean, you seem really passionate about this. Yeah. You're really running a bank also, right? Right. Because in the end of the day, we're only going to be as good as society. Mm -hmm. You know, it, what, how, do, how does a bank make its money when societies prosper and economies grow? And, and if we believe that the tariff of climate is going to be such that it's going to slow down growth or hurt growth or cause risk, you know, we need to help get through it. Now, we have to be realistic that it's going to take everybody making changes in my mind, not any one magic idea or any one magic technology. And so whether it's about the climate, about our human capital, how we were $20 an hour this quarter for every starting the high school, you know, back in your high school days, if you interned for us, you would get a $40,000 a year annual pay uh, rate today. Uh, if you work 20 hours a week, you get uh, full benefits. Uh, right. The living wage component, that's like $60 an hour to give you a sense. So right. th these are these are, are $40 an hour, $50 an hour. If you think about these things, these are commitments we make as a company to, in the way we operate that then have societal benefit. And I think you have to do both. And so the environment right. is just one of them. I want to ask you, too, about that uh, pay because that's an important issue as well. Another speaker here today, of course, is President Trump. Um, you're going to be meeting with him with the International Business Council. What's going to be on your mind? What, what do you think the dialogue is going to be with the president? Well, I, I think the dialogue when you have a bunch of businesses that are largest companies in the world is always going to be about trade policy and, and you know, the phase one deal and USMCA and a European deal and, and a tariff deal on, or the tax deal with on the uh, technology taxes that uh, France and the United States signed. At the end of the day, economic uh, policy along that dimension is critical for companies to be able to plan. And so I think that'll be the, most of the dialogue with them around that. Uh, I'm sure about geopolitical risks and, you know, and uh, all the other topics of the day. But in the end of the day, the business community wants to be able to engage in business and help drive that economic growth and be a catalyst to make it happen. And they, to do that, they need certainty and they want to hear from you know, uh, heads of state, whether it's the president or Savannah Leiden or whoever, uh, about you know how how are we going to have that stability so we can grow. The president tweeted out right before he came here, going to Davos bring to bring quote additional hundreds of billions of dollars back to the United States of America. Do you know what he was referring to? That that one I'm not sure about. We'll, uh, uh, we'll have to let him speak. Maybe you can ask him about it when you <laughs> see him. Um, so Brian, you've been CEO of the bank for pretty much ten years yeah. now. Um, what should we take away from your tenure? Well, I think we have done a lot of great things in the company. And often when people think of my tenure, it started in 2010, January 1st, so that you had the crisis sort of starting to come through, but the aftermath of the crisis was severe and as the largest mortgage lender in the country, one of the largest credit card lenders in the country, all the things that were going on with unemployment and the mortgage issues and all that affected our company dramatically. And so a lot of people shape up the first half of the decade about that. But the reality was underneath that we were investing $3 billion a year in new technologies, expanding our mobile platform, expanding our digital platform. Uh, we were retooling our whole branch system. We were uh, changing out our all ATMs to ones that you can touch with a phone. So the, the interesting thing is we were both, you know, we walked and chewed gum. We basically dealt with the issues that we had to put behind us. 
and people say wartime, peacetime, but we had, you know, that was the wartime. But on the peacetime, we were investing heavily. And so after a decade of that, people are now seeing record earnings in 2019, record earnings in 2018, more record in 2019. They look at it and say, where did this come from? You say, it was always there. It's as we cleaned away the issues of the past, you could see that earnings stream come through for the shareholders, and that leads to top shareholder returns you know, in, against the industry, against the peers, et cetera. When you think about it from customer, customer scores the highest, teammate scores the highest, and the team has done a great job to balance all the constituencies. And during that 10 years, two and a half billion of charitable giving, $50 billion of low and moderate income development, largely around housing, uh, 20 million volunteer uh, hours by our teammates. Right. So we made progress on the things that are important, our environmental commitments I talked about. That's the interesting thing. We've been able to both deliver great returns, 15.8% uh, return on equity last year, and deliver for society and improve the company, all during a time when people were concerned about what was going on. And it took a while, though, I mean, for the stock to respond. And the stock has basically tripled yeah. since 2016. Right. Um, it's up from three bucks right. um, in the spring of 2009 to, what, 35-ish yeah. today. But did you ever have doubts? I mean, people doubted you. They said, oh, we don't know if he's the right guy for the job. Did right. you ever have doubts yourself? No, because we had a great team, and they knew what they were doing. We, it was helpful to have people from inside the company understand what got us in there, and we have lessons learned that we never want people to get, and now you're 12 years. The first signs of the cracks were 06. So you're, you're four, you know, 13 going to 14 years after housing started going down, and so we have to always have to remind teammates that you know, things don't always go right. In all things in moderation is the theme we use in balance in the company. So that, that's one of the things we work on and worry about. But if you think about the company overall, the team's done a great job, and you know we're we're making progress along the R8 lines of business. Market shares growing, doing it the right way, doing it the right risk, and providing good returns, and doing it on the basis that what we call uh, operational excellence, which drives an investment capability to continue that three billion in technology, to continue the 1.7 billion in capital expenditures we do each year, to continue moving employees at $20 an hour and special bonuses that were a million, a billion and a half dollars. These are all important things to help drive the company. Yeah, I mean, where do we go from here then with B of A, though, Brian? I mean, you guys have talked about doubling the consumer right. business. Um, you have an opportunity there, you think. What about the economy and the macro environment? Sure. And, you know, how much longer, what, can the expansion go beyond this, what, 11 years now? Well, the, the answer is it'll go as long as it goes because right. everybody predicted to be over in, you know, 2011 when Chairman Bernanke said we're going to keep them low for longer. People thought we were going to tip back in recession. We didn't. You know, in, in you know, last year, August, the yield curve inverted for a few days. Every, oh, we're going to recession. We haven't. And so I think the idea is it's, the United States has this unique thing that we're not growing as fast as we'd like. But underneath that, what's driving it is the employment levels, the wage growth that's coming on stronger, deep in the cycle, and then the spending of consumers. So when you look at our consumers during the 2019, $3 trillion moved through the, we're debit and credit card spending, checks written, um, cash out of the ATMs, you know, P2P payments under Zelle, uh, bill payment, $3 trillion, so it's not a small sample. And that grew by 5.9% over 18. It's still growing today, first part of this year, at about a 5% rate. That means, in the end of the day, the consumer will be in pretty good shape, uh, evidenced by their activity. That will help drive the economy. What it means to Bank of America, we have tremendous opportunity. And so when I talked about doubling our market share in consumer, it was against a question, well, is there any opportunity left yeah. for you or so big? The idea is our real market share. We're, in, we're the number one um, retail bank in the U.S. We're number one retail bank in the top 30 markets, but we're only number one in 12 of them, and we weren't in seven of them until two years ago. 
So there's just this plenty of opportunity to organically grow, and there's no you know, constraint because the, the, the market's so unconsolidated. And so that's what we're challenging our team to do. How do you drive that kind of growth, whether it's in wealth management, whether it's commercial banking, consumer banking, or capital markets? The low interest rate environment, though, is tough for, for banks, and in particular Bank of America. Don't you anticipate this continuing for some time, and isn't that going to be a wind in your face? Well, it's going... If you think where the rate environment is now, it, it's always easier when it's highest. When you have a trillion four of deposits, you have seven hundred billion. Those are consumer deposits of the trillion four. You know, four hundred, five hundred billion plus are non-interest bearing, so they mean more to you when rates are higher than they're lower, and that's the natural squeeze that goes on. But the reality is, the current rate environment is only back to where it was a couple of years ago when we had then record earnings. So we can we can do it because the cost effectiveness and how we've invested and how we've driven the cost down for three, two or three years we've been operating a cost, in a company basically flat to slightly down. For ten years it's come down every year. The last three years it's flattened out because we got a lot of stuff out. But that operational excellence enables to make more money and have operating leverage even if rates aren't exactly where it might be easier for us to make the money. Yeah, I mean, it's not great for your net interest margin, yeah. but you can still get the job right. done. And why is bond trading so good for you guys right now? Well, it, it, when you have what happened in the fourth quarter mm -hmm. where there was a lot of volatility because of a lot of activity, um, a lot of volatility because a lot of market activity, rates were moving around, currencies were moving around, uh, things were being resolved and unresolved, all that's good. But the th caution I'd say to people, if you look at fourth quarter of 19 and fourth quarter 16, for basically all the industry participants, it's relatively flat. And what happened was we came down as an industry and came back up. Some people came down more because of the difference in their business models. Some people didn't. So, you know, I, I think we have to be careful that we run the Marcus business that Tom Montag and the team run to really deliver for investor clients and help bring the the uh, companies to market, and so it'll it'll always be, you know, one of the sm one of the smaller businesses in terms of earnings power, but that's because it's balanced against the company, and we're very pleased with what they do. They had a good quarter. Uh, it hopefully, happens every quarter, but you know, it's market, so sometimes people sit on their hands and things get quiet. If you could whisper into Jay Powell's ear right now, Brian, what would you tell him? Well, I think I think they done what they need to do, which is you are in unprecedented times with the length of duration of the expansion. It, so he's, he's in a unique position. No chair has ever been here before. And what they've done is watched closely to see where the impacts of things outside the United States or the impacts of things, you know, slowdown and, and business confidence or spending in 2019 as you sort of went through the inventory correction and the equipment spending fell he basically said, we need to give a little insurance, and they did. And I don't think he's, I, I, maybe before he did it, I could have given you some insight as to how he thought about it. If I, But the reality is they're very transparent, and, and they're kind of done with that. And that's the point is that as long as unemployment's at three and a half and wages are growing and the economy's growing, they have given enough to make sure that that duration of cycle lengthens out. And I think the markets responded well to that. And I think that's a, but, he, but he's in a, he and the Fed generally, the Open Markets Committee, are in a place that no one's ever been. Mm. It's the longest duration and the largest economy in the world. And so from 2007 you know, to now, the U.S. economy has grown by $7 trillion of size or $8 trillion or something like that. The rest of the economy, is, the European economy is basically flat across that time, $18 trillion, $17 trillion. The U.S. has gone from 12. So if you think about it, and China's grown. To engineer that to keep happening at the size requires us to do a lot of work as capitalists and driving investments and things like that. And, it, and it's a different art for the Fed. Can the expansion continue? And if so, what would drive it? What's going to drive it is the 
the power of you know innovation, the power of consumerism in the United States in, in terms of the United States expansion. And so our projections are 1.7% GDP next year growth for the United States. So we have the number one research team in the world, and Candace Browning Platt and the team run it. They're 1.7%. Um, there's risk the upside for that if, if more things fall in place along all the dimensions of the worries. Um, and there's risk the downside if they deteriorate. But, but the reality is 1.7 is slower than this year. And that, that is part of what you know, everybody's worried about is the economies have been slowing down and the question would they bottom out and come out. And you're seeing in the U.S. it's kind of bottoming out above where people predicted to slow down too. And that's been good. And that's largely been driven by jobs and employment. When you talk to our corporate clients, our commercial clients, and our small business clients, Hiring people is the number one issue, and they, they just can't get enough people. Um, and so even with all the work we've done for special bonuses in our company, and, and if you work in our company for the last decade and you've started at 50000 you you've had average annual wage and salary increases of 6 8 10%, 12%, all the way up to a half million and under, give you a sense, per year. And yet our turnover rate is down, but it still ain't nothing. And that means that's the strength of the job market. And so I think that strength of the job market, the strength of the consumer spending, uh, credit's in good shape, consumers are borrowed responsibly, and companies can't find them. That's the real constraint on the economy. Housing, they can't get enough people to build the houses, yet it's coming back a little bit. So we'll, we'll see it play out. I think that gives you good confidence that the expansion continues to expand. I mean, is this because of Donald Trump, Brian? I mean, or is it because of Jay Powell? Is it because of Brian Moynihan? Animal well, spirits? I will tell you this. We, we've, been, uh, we've been in business since 1784 in the oldest parts of our company, and Brian Moynihan's will come and go, presidents will come and go, chairs of the Fed will come and go. Yet the power of the U.S. economy is pretty interesting. And so 50 years ago, the U.S. employed half the people they employ today, 70 to 150 million. The population went from 2 to 300 million, 2 and change to 330. Think about that dynamic and what was going on in 1969 and 70. Vietnam, Watergate, Kent State, the riots in Chicago, the primaries, the, the state of race relations in the United States. The advent of the computer came on, and still you employed twice as many people. So the U.S. economy just has a way of grinding through because that innovation, the capital is there, the capitalist spirit, and it works better than any economy in the world. And that's one of the things we're trying to get everybody to understand is you can be capitalist and do and make progress for society. But don't challenge capitalism. It led to 80 million more Americans working than 50 years ago. That's a good thing. Or is that a nod to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren when you're saying don't knock capitalism? It, as I said, we'll get through this election like we've gotten through all of them. And whatever comes out of it, you know, that's what the American people voted. And we'll run the company well and, and whatever happens. When you're talking about the power of the American economy, yeah. you sound a lot like Warren Buffett, yeah. which maybe makes sense because he's a big believer in your institution right yeah. now. Do yeah. you talk to Buffett and... What do you guys well, he, he's, chat about? You know, he, he's been a shareholder of ours uh, since 2011, and then he, he uh, in public disclosure, he bought a lot more stock in the middle of 18 and middle of 19. So he, he owns over 10%, and he's applied to keep that going up because of the bank holding company technical rules. He has to make an application. And that's a big endorsement of you. It, it, well, it's a big endorsement of me and the team and what we're doing. And I think he sees a great franchise that has great capabilities and, and generates you know great returns for him and, and, and us all his other shareholders. If you would invest the same day, Mr. Buffett did, you would have gotten the same return he did. The question is, did you have the courage to do it? And by the way, did you have the courage to do it with the size of investment you made, even including the preferred dividends and the warrants and all the stuff that people say? Yeah, the reality is if you just would have bought our preferred, you could have gotten a 10% yield that day. If you bought our common, you would have ridden it up at less price. So the reality is he's done well, but the whole shareholder base has done well, and that's because the team's done a good job. Now, maybe that means you're going to stick around for a while. I've read that you said you're going to stay 
as long as the board will have you, you're having yep. fun, you don't see any doing anything else. Does Buffett talk to you about, Brian, you make sure you stay in that chair for a while? Uh, it, no, he doesn't. He, he's, a, he's an investor, so he, right. he, he uh, uh, I hope he'd want me to stay because I hope the board wants me to stay as a 10% holder. You want him to want you to stay, but that's a different question. You'll have to ask him that, but uh, and I, it, he, we've done a good job for him. He's, he, he's been a great supporter, and, and we really value But the broader context, this is an unbelievable company. And what we can do to, with our uh, 200,000-plus teammates, our 600,000 family members that work with us, and how we think about mental wellness and physical wellness and health care benefits and keeping health care benefits flat for people in the lower-paid categories for years and having grow at one-third the rate of the increase in the company. Um, all, all these things are incredibly important to run the company, my team, and we believe is the right way. And we, so we think there's so much opportunity ahead of us to continue to drive that. You're talking about your employees, Brian, and you grew up in a large yeah. family. You guys had to scrimp and save. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't a wealthy family yeah. by any means. Do you think that that gives you an appreciation for working people generally and particular, in particular at the bank? And you said you're paying people more and you're going to go to $20 an hour, I think, yeah. within the next couple of years. Next couple of weeks. Next couple of weeks, right, because it's this year, this 2020. Quarter. This quarter. This yeah. quarter. Yeah. Do American companies need to step up and pay workers more? I, I think I think our company believes that we had to, and it's not just because it's good for the employees. It's also good for the stability and the turnover and all those things. But we're really showing this career path for people, and that goes into the term you hear about in Davos is called reskilling. Inside a company, you, you don't think of the word reskill. You think of training and development, and do people have development pathways? So. We have put a lot of effort on that. We want to have a person spend their entire career with our company. I've worked for the company 26, going 27 years, you know, many of my colleagues. We recognize every year the 50, 55, and 60-year year tenure employees, and 15 or 20 of them come in. So, but we want them to have a dynamic and be all they can be from a diversity, be whoever they are, be successful. And so that retires reskilling and retraining throughout. I think all companies can do, do that. Um, there can be different economic questions of whether they can pay the minimum starting wage or we can pay because their business model is different. But I think we can do it. And I think companies that make the money we can do it can do it too. You know, I want to ask you about regulation. Um, and obviously, uh, you guys probably would say you're safer, okay. that there's less systemic risk right. brought to bear out in the system um, by you and the other big right. banks. Does that mean regulation worked? It did. It did because... Um, there are two things that work. One is regulation, and second is the stewardship of the boards and management teams and stuff to reposition the company. Um, if you think of the two things, what were the regulations about? We need more capital. We need more liquidity so in tough times you'll, you'll be able to withstand market shocks. You need to bring the activities to, core, to the core activities that you need to conduct to be both a bank and a capital markets uh, uh, intermediary in helping people get to the market, i.e. no principal trading, the so-called vocal rule. Um, and you needed um, those types of things uh, laid out. All those are part of the, whether it's you know, Dodd-Frank or whether it's the different rules and regulations after. And so basically you've seen the capital industry double. Mm -hmm. And then you've seen stress testing around that capital, which says every year you go through the stress test. And every year they basically imagine yourself in a car going 100 miles an hour where you can't touch the brake and you run in the wall and you say, will you survive? And what that proves is the industry has more capital than the industry started with in the last financial crisis after you have no ability to prepare, modify your business, and you just run in the wall without any warning, which really never happens because you see the... So I, I think the industry, the regulation has worked. Now the question is, sometimes you have five rules that don't 
aren't consistent. Parts of Dodd-Frank, no matter whether you talk to the writers of it or the people who helped draft it from the staff, they aren't consistent. They actually say two different things. So the idea of getting the pendulum adjusted appropriately is critical because each 100 basis points of capital required for Bank of America is about $15 billion of capital. We can make $150 billion of loans with it. So if we have a 9% requirement versus a 10% requirement because of the rules, if 9 was good enough and 10 is too much, that 100 basis point, we could have made $150 billion more loans to society. If, if we, the capital we have in so-called SIFI buffer, we're not allowed to take any risk on. So our SIFI buffer is 2.5%. Uh, if it were 3.5%, you'd have that difference. So the question of getting those calibrations right is one of the keys, and I think that's a dialogue that ongoes. Doesn't mean you're not going to get rid of the concept or get rid of the concept of how much you need, just calibrating right. And so my colleague CEOs in America and around the world are saying, hey, some of the stuff doesn't really work. Some of the stuff is doing, having an impact on you that, that the markets and worlds that we don't want. So let's talk about that. None of us are saying lower capital, lower liquidity. And so, you know, our, our tangible common record ratio of 7.5% or whatever it is this quarter was 3% before the crisis. That difference is $100 billion of tangible common equity. That, that is a different balance sheet. Our liquidity was $100 billion, now it's four, four to $500 billion. We can go four or five years without raising any money. We, we don't do this for the regs. We do this because we believe nobody should control the destiny of Bank of America other than Bank of America. And so whether it's the rating agency, whether it's the regulators, whether it's the equity markets, we have to be stable in all times because with the size we have and the scope we have, we have to make sure people think of us as a source of strength. Finally, Brian, um, what do you think your legacy is? What would you like it to be? I know your brother's a missionary, for yeah. instance. You've done some work with him. What's your take on that? You know, I think, I think legacy, I always wonder, maybe people want to get rid of me because they want to talk about it. There's still a lot to be written, and, and I don't focus a lot on what we accomplished. I, we use the phrase in our company called nice start, which means, yes, take congratulations for what you've accomplished in the last 10 years, but realize it's a start to another decade, it happens to be a decade turn, to go dry the next 10 years. And so that nice start is what I feel. And so I want our legacy to be that we kept improving this company, left more wood on the wood pile, whatever analogy you want to use, and we did it along all the dimensions. Our customer scores are the highest they've ever been, and we're driving the places of financial services have ever been. Our teammate scores are the highest in the, mar in the business, not only on general scores, but on diversity and on risk and things like that. We're driving that. The way we pay our teammates and the fairness, the human capital impact, so called, that we have. Then the shareholder returns are, are strong, as good as anybody's, et cetera. And can we deliver as a society? So that's not a legacy, that's an operating principle. If we can deliver on the SDGs, our environmental commitment, what we do in our human capital, our retraining, our reskilling, our low and moderate income housing development, if we can deliver on both of those and show you can make good returns, 15% plus return on equity for your shareholders, tangible common equity for shareholders, and deliver 250 million charitable giving, and deliver $5 billion low and moderate income, and deliver a third year of $1,000 special bonuses to teammates, and deliver a special stock bonus to teammates up to 350000 and do $1.7 billion in capital investment, and put out 40 new branches and revisit 300, and become the biggest small business lender, minimum size lender in the country. If you can do both those things, that's pretty interesting. And that, that, that isn't a legacy, that's an operating principle. It sounds like you've got a lot of work to do then. We do, we do. A lot of opportunity and a lot of work. Ronnie Moynihan, CEO of Bank of America, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time.